Hello, welcome to Unbiased with me, Darshi Hoindra. I help organizations rethink how they use data and new technologies in a compliant, unbiased, and inclusive way. I'm on a mission to rehumanize technology so that we can max out on all the potential benefits it brings whilst keeping people very much at the center of its oversight and success. Now, this podcast is very much centered on the human side of the equity and inclusion equation. Through guests sharing their stories of how bias has affected and continues to affect their day-to-day lives, we can get a glimpse into the beautifully complex fabric interwoven into our communities. And we can learn about some of their work in trying to address or combat the ill effects of some of those biases. J.K. Jr., a Hong Kong movie star on the cusp of breaking through to the Hollywood big time as the lead of the blockbuster spy film Brood Empire. Not the sharpest tool in the shed, but definitely the hottest. Our grandparents grew up with the yellow peril. Our parents grew up with yellow discomfort. Our generation grew up with yellow invisibility. I genuinely believe that representation is the key to cultural acceptance. If your heroes on the screen and the world look like you, that can change everything. So if what I'm doing is able to shift the needle even an inch towards mainstream cultural acceptance of Asians in film and TV, then there could be a whole new group of kids out there who mightn't have the baggage that I had growing up. All the wasted energy I spent trying to fit in and act white. For me, the real measure of success the proof that Asians have been fully accepted in Western society will be when they start naming natural disasters after us. Hurricane Schwang, Cyclone Kama. That's when we'll know we've really made it. And it goes the other way, too. Let's get a Tsunami Joe in there once in a while, you know? A Typhoon Brett, a Monsoon Tina, or what have you. This is a snippet from my guest, Xiang Lu's award-winning book, The Whitewash. It's just a great summary of a book that covers serious themes of representation with tongue-in-cheek humour that I just couldn't do justice with a summary today. Now, The Whitewash won Audiobook of the Year at the 2023 Australian Book Industry Awards, and Xiang won the Glendower Emerging Writer Award at the Queen's Literary Awards, along with being shortlisted at the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. His writing has appeared in KYD, Pedestrian, Southerly and Westerly. Xiang has been a speaker at writers' festivals around Australia and holds a Master of Letters from the University of Sydney. Xiang is based in Brisbane, Australia and Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And he's also co-creator of The Beige Index and the creator of Hashtag Dumbbutstagram. Xiang, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Darshi. It's a pleasure to be on. Shang, I usually start from the beginning on this podcast with guests sharing their own origin stories and, and how their lived experiences has shaped, have shaped the work that they do um, with a particular focus on bias and, and what they do and how they address it. But today I feel the need to sort of work backwards, starting with the whitewash, which was um, why I just had to have you on this unbiased podcast. Um, I was keen to get you on ever since I listened to the audio version of the whitewash, and it was this 
award-winning audiobook and one with a much bigger cast than I'm used to hearing, um, a majority of which have Asian and indeed Chinese heritage, um, writing about the so-called whitewashing of the Asian film industries and the biases and the stereotypes that affect Asian representation in Hollywood. Um, it's written in this really unique mockumentary style, not what you usually expect from writers addressing issues as big as representation. Um, and so someone, as someone who spends my days working in the world of inclusion and as a South Asian who's well aware of a lack of any non-Caucasian representation almost across the board in media, I was so impressed by the production itself and what I heard or, or what you read is just goes from incredibly laugh out loud funny to, you know, at other times kind of gasping with that knowing despair. And so you put across these really powerful messages through dark comedy, heavy satire, this mix of fact and fiction, which for readers like me who actually have a sparse knowledge of the Asian of Asian film history is sometimes indistinguishable. And so I really want to hear in your words, Xiang, tell us what The Whitewash is about, why you wrote it, who you wrote it for, and, and what you're hoping readers to take away from it. Yeah, it's a lot of questions. Um, it's a lot to unpack. <clears throat> I guess starting with what the book is about, I might actually just read a little bit from the blurb, if that's okay. Um, so essentially it's, well, I'll paraphrase, but it's, like you said, a mockumentary. Uh, it's a comedy. And it's essentially a spy thriller, which is um, intended to be created between a co-production of Hollywood and China that would star for the first time in history an Asian male lead. And we're talking, you know, that kind of Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, James Bond style AAA blockbuster. Um, and although I guess the twist being that it would star for the first time in film history, an Asian male lead um, and starring J.K. Jr., our fictional lead, who uh, described on the back of the book, is not the sharpest tool in the shed, but definitely the hottest. So, yeah, like you said, it's a comedy. I guess the reason that I wrote it and perhaps wrote it in this fashion is that, I mean, for one, I'd never seen or read a book like this before and it was just kind of it was kind of this desire for a book to exist in this fashion and if you're not seeing the book on the shelf then you'd better write that book um the origin for the book itself was actually it was probably around 2018 2017 when i started thinking about this stuff deeply um whitewashing is ordinarily thought of something that is sort of this historical artifact, something that started off in the 20s and the 50s um, and sort of continued on, but things have gotten better. And I suppose they have in some way, but really not enough. And also very egregiously so, They like whitewashing has morphed into different forms um, over time. So... I was thinking in 2017 or pr probably 2016 or 17, whenever news of that Ghost in the Shell remake came out, which if 
your listeners aren't familiar, started out as originally as a Japanese comic and then was turned into a great film um, starring a Japanese lead. And the Hollywood remake starred Scarlett Johansson as a part Asian character, uh, which sort of caused a lot of uproar. But one of the things that I'd heard through the production was that they'd actually done CGI tests on making Scarlett's eyes smaller. Um, and that really just kind of blew me away thinking, you know, we're in 2017 now, like this should be a thing of the past and yet it's still here. So that was one thing that was sort of kicking around in my head. But sort of the genesis for the book was, again, around that time that I think we would now be in the year, if I'm not mistaken, um, of the 50th anniversary of Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon. Um, if not this year, then last year. And I'd had this crazy idea, this crazy thought of like, what if they remade this film on the 50th year anniversary, but remade it with, and this could never happen, but remade it with as many of the original cast as possible. Yes, they would be very old. Some would have died. Obviously, clearly Bruce Lee. But the point being that they would cast in the lead role a man called Bruce Lee, but spelled L-E-I-G-H. And I just started laughing at the idea, and I thought, well, I have to write this. So it's not a big part of the book, but it is in it. And that was sort of how, like my entry point into all of that. What a great, what a great in, um, and it, and there's a lot even to unpack in your in your response about just that being pulled to it actually being that representation yourself and 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 filling that shelf with something that doesn't exist in in an industry where we're used to where it's, it's far easier to kind of follow on with the themes that are going it's far easier to get yourself published with with something that kind of pulls along the status status quo so I really congratulate you and the teams that are behind getting the whitewash on on those shelves so then Xiang working backwards tell us a bit about you and your your upbringing your your unique style I think that comes across so well in this book and so I'm kind of keen to hear about what made Xiong? I was born in Malaysia, and I do spend part of each year there. I'll be there this December and January as well. And I grew up in Australia. And I think, you know, for any of your listeners who are, are maybe migrants or grew up in a different culture than the ones that their parents grew up in, it can be really challenging. It can be a bit of a minefield. And I often talk about how my parents and my parents' generation sort of had to do the hard thing. They had to pack up sticks and move to the different country and raise their children. I, I, I can't speak for everyone, but at least for my family, the main reason to do that was not sort of business or opportunity. It was like to give me and my brother, a better upbringing, like a better education, a better chance at a better life. And that's a noble goal. It's a really hard goal. And it can be very daunting and isolating for people of that generation. Yet, people of my generation, the second generation migrants, if that's the correct word, sort of have this different challenge where 
we're not feeling all of those pressures. We're not fully understanding all of those reasons. And all we like all our inputs are, I'm growing up, I'm speaking a language at home, which I don't speak outside. I don't look like the other people that are in school with me. We're eating different foods. I'm sort of, I'm not saying that there was any bullying, but there's this, just this sense that you're other. And I think it is quite a common thing, at least very much of my experience for a very long time, adolescence, pre-adolescence, and even post-adolescence to feel burdened by that and feel like you'd rather not be other, that you'd really part of, be part of the mainstream. And so that was kind of my experience for a really long time. And I sort of described this thing as being, you know, we, me and my brother were pretty sheltered as kids. I had a friend who's actually on the audiobook who plays Miranda, who was, who migrated to New Zealand, had a pretty similar upbringing to me, in the, but with one key difference. Her parents from Malaysia never migrated. They just sent their children to New Zealand. And that's also a common thing where siblings are in a house and they're sort of raising themselves. And she describes herself as a latchkey kid. And I really sort of thought about that for a really long time. I'm not a latchkey kid. I had a pretty sheltered and happy childhood, all things considered. But in terms of like culture, culturally, I'm absolutely a latchkey kid. Does that make sense? You're sort of left to your own devices. It's a really long-winded way of saying my parents and people of my parents' generation were concerned about the key thing, which was like, how do we live and how do we thrive? And my generation were concerned about how do we fit in? How, like, who are we? And that's this really interesting thing of, you know, I wasn't really fed very much of a cultural diet, like a literary diet from my parents and my brother, uh, my family. They're not really a reading family and there's nothing really wrong or, or not wrong about that. But it is also something that's very much my own. You know, you, you sort of come to embrace the thing that friends have influenced you, you have influenced yourself. And I think you sort of come to know yourself through that portal, whatever that portal is. For me, it was literature. And, you know, you, you, you read to escape, you, you read to empathize. And at least for me, I was at the time studying a law degree that I just could not imagine. It was a law and an arts degree. And I couldn't imagine completing the law degree because at the time I didn't have the maturity to understand that once you get the law degree, you don't need to become a lawyer. Like you don't need to do that. So I sort of dropped out spectacularly, but sort of found myself falling into that hole of just loving literature more and more and more. And one of the really sort of key and pivotal moments for me, and this might sound maybe a little naive, but perhaps it was the time, like it was the times growing up in the nineties and sort of being in uni in the 2000, early two thousands reading David Mitchell's, not the comedian, but the, the author of Cloud Atlas, his book, Number Nine Dream, which is, it's a wonderful book, but I shouldn't say, but, and it's, 
lead is an Asian, it's a young Asian male around my age as I was reading it. It had this tremendous impact on me. I mean, beyond being a wonderful book, I remember distinctly feeling, why would, why would a man, I guess, I get, I guess it was maybe inarticulable at the time, but it was this feeling of why would a white man want to make his protagonist an Asian lead? And I'm embarrassed to even say that now. And I think the culture has gone very far. The industry has gone really far as well. But I felt seen and I felt inspired. And that's, I mean, I could talk about that for hours, but essentially these are kind of the, the building blocks. You've articulated really beautifully, Xiang. I think the the story of a lot of that the immigrant experience, the child being a child of immigrants, and and where actually you're at that at that stage and that stage of of your life, your your parents and your objectives are in some ways diametrically opposed but you each sort of have to be because you're each sort of doing what you need to do. And, and actually I hadn't thought of that concept of latchkey in the same way that now really makes, makes a lot of sense. Cause at that time I know plenty of people, myself included in growing up in the UK under similar circumstances, I also would say, you know, had, had a really sheltered, really, you know, stable, loving family household, but, actually at our core the parents and the immigrants kind of objective is just to yet to give that life you actually you almost have this blank canvas because you don't want to lean too heavily into your own cultural history because you're trying to you're trying to fit in 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 a new country and even your you know my parents are, are the same it's funny I feel like only now in adulthood can really actually address um, with my parents and having those conversations because at the time it was just we didn't really want to bog you down with all of that we're trying to 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 acclimatize and to to fit into this new society and meanwhile you're having to figure out yourself then what identity means to you and and thank you for taking us on that beautiful journey of how literature did that for you and catalyzed what you did I wonder whether in terms of your drive and and getting through to becoming the author that you are today, did did actually quitting your law degree in the face of again for, for many of those immigrant parents, you're at that stage at which you signed up for that degree, your, your parents are living the dream. <laughs> How was that transition for you? Because it's something I speak to a lot of, you know, startup founders and creatives, also similar backgrounds for whom that was actually a really incredibly big jump to make when you acknowledge the sacrifices that, that the pet, your parents had had to, to, to make to, to bring you over and give you the education and the life that you had. Yeah, I sort of chalk it up to immaturity, which I think is a bit of a gift as well, looking back. If I, you know, my current self would not be making those choices and yet they're the choices that have made me me. And so I've got to be grateful for them. I haven't really told this story before, but I sort of crashed out of my law degree in like the most ridiculous way possible rather than just sort of cancel. I remember 
losing more interest in law, gaining more in literature, and, you know, sort of dumb 18 or 19-year-old sort of submitting a law assignment that was partially a short story. And, well, I thought it was a pretty good short story. I can't remember. But I remember getting a failing grade, obviously. I mean, like, that was the intention. You know, very self-destructive. But I was shocked and surprised to hear that the, the tutor who had marked that had complained to the dean. And so the dean rang me up and, you know, unexpectedly had this amazing conversation. He, he rang me up and he said, you know, like he explained the situation that this tutor had compla- like complained and sort of talked to me about it. He said, like, obviously I'm going to have to fail you. And I said, well, that was kind of the point. And we kind of got to know each other over this really long phone call. It turned out that, you know, I talked a little bit about like parental expectation and he, his tone softened. He said to me that he was going through something really similar with his son, who was about my age, and that he, like he understood where I was coming from. And in this weird, almost literary way, I was almost a proxy for his son, and he was like a proxy for my dad, right? And we had this really tender, <laughs> tender moment uh, between us. And even like one, one of the things that I never forget, I can't really remember how he came onto this, but I guess he sort of he, he sort of asked me and said, "Well, I guess you want to be a writer then." And I said, "Yes." And and he said. We, we got onto this sort of debate almost about like who would inherit the earth if it would be the writers or if it would be the orators. And I, yeah, obviously I said the writers and obviously he said the orators cause he was, I think in a previous life a barrister and we weren't either of us quite sure. And th- I think that was the beautiful thing. Um, obviously I've thought about that a lot and particularly more and more as you publish a work, you think, you know, naive introvert self, I'll just sit in my room and I'll just write the book and I'll publish the book and then that'll be it. But then they kind of shove you out into the world and say, now go be an extrovert, go and talk about it, go on a podcast with Dashi, um, go, go on the radio, you know, and it's made me very philosophical about that discussion that I had with him because I think he might be right. You know, you have to represent the book. Representation is so important and there are different versions of representation. I am a very shy person and I came to know that the whitewash, writing the whitewash, having the idea for it, having the good luck to be involved in the audio production of it was this gift to me in so many ways. But, Probably above all, it allowed me to get over myself and over my fear of the microphone, over the fear of the stage, because it was like most, and, and I do not begrudge other authors this, uh, I'm, just, I'm just not built in the same way. Most authors would, would talk about their process themselves and their origin story and all that kind of stuff. That's really important. That's like, that's lovely. Um, and I like hearing that stuff too. But for me, I realized that I could use the microphone as a platform to talk about something that was really important to me and advocate for better representation. So suddenly it became about 
well, you don't, you shy away from the microphone, but now that your face is shoved in front of it, you'd better talk about something that is important and something that's meaningful to you. So, yeah, I mean, this has all been like a wonderful journey and a gift. It feels like in addition to, you know, sort of that representation even from that Asian perspective, what you've shared there is that real call to action in some ways, but to really, I think for all those introverts that are listening there, um, and I'm one of those too, I was like, oh, I think I'll, I think I want to have these conversations. Oh, okay. I suppose I'll put a podcast out. I guess I'll, I'll just take a few quiet recordings my husband was my first first guest on there and I'll, I'll distribute it but I won't I won't tell anyone about it it's there I've done the thing but what's the use of being the best advocate the best writer the best anything if you're not going to share that with the world and I think you know to have that articulated for introverts who are having to navigate a very extroverted world or a world that really applauds extroversion it's really it's very direct but such brilliant advice to get over yourself actually <laughs> find find something that you're incredibly passionate about and then just talk about that yeah that's right and it becomes about that and not about oh well i i have to put myself out there i i i have to do these things it's about sharing that message and the beauty of of actually that combination of the writing and the oratory is that you through writing you still get to actually you have the protection of 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 putting onto the page things that you might not in a moment feel like you would articulate orally in that way your book does not read like the stuff of of introverts right it's an extremely it's extremely hard-hitting direct like hilarious book and story and so I really appreciate that you put all that into the world and and I do think for representation it is it is also about putting your face up there it's about knowing that our kids can think oh I could do that because Xiang does it because Dashi does it not just seeing a norm or seeing things that you aspire to but I couldn't possibly be because we don't see it yet yeah I mean I think that representation obviously I think about it a lot but I think that one of the risks in more and better representation is moving more towards even a monolithic style of representation. Whereas for me, and I think I wrote this in the book, it's like it, the importance is in the patchwork. The importance is in having different diverse voices. One diverse uh, author is not going to write or speak in the same way. And I think that's the risk where people might sort of see, I don't know, you know, Amy Tan and sort of say, okay, well, that's the, that's the lived Asian experience there. It's not like that. And I think that patchwork is, is just so incredibly important because it, it also sort of came back to, I got a lot of questions early on around why write a book like this in this way. You're obviously really passionate about getting more and better representation for Asians in film and TV. What, like this could have been a PhD. And I think my response to that is, yeah, but who would read that? Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, like, I don't mean to be flippant, but it was, it was sort of this idea of, well, here's this thing that should be talked about, but is not really being talked about in this way, you know? And a real, like, a real goal f for me was, and again, 
it does not have to be like this for other authors. But for me, it was in, in being able to entertain as much as I was educating. And I don't want to use that word too prescriptively, uh, educate. But uh, I'll tell you one thing. One of my early readers got in touch with me and said to me this thing that I'll never forget. She said, I've read your book, really liked it. I think it's made me smarter but I don't know what's real and what's false. So maybe you've made me dumber. And that was awesome. That, that actually it's really bringing me back to listening to that story and thinking some of this, some similar things, because as I said, you know, that it's something that fact and fiction is indistinguishable at times when you don't, don't know that piece. I also applauded the book for, for that reason, because I'm in your echo chamber, Xiang. I work in this space, representation is a lot to me. And that was the reason that I downloaded the book, actually. I saw something called The Whitewash. I think I know what I'm lending myself in for. Um, I did see documentaries sort of in the blur, but I was actually expecting an essay. I was expecting this essay on representation. And then I was so hit, you know, hit from, from minute one of, okay, this isn't quite what I had in mind. And, and that's what sort of sunk for me is that now, rather than being a book that, oh, everyone knows, you know, that's Darcy's thing. And so that's in her library for that reason. I was able to share that much more broadly to go, oh, look, it is about this thing, but it's also this great book. And so again, getting that, spreading that message and, and I think really you covered as well that a point that I think cannot be made strong, more strong is that one, you know, one person cannot be the voice of an entire diaspora. So and and actually the book in itself, because it weaves so many different characters through it, it already gives you that sense of this isn't one writer with with one view, because sometimes there's a lot of pressure on uh, those who are representing, who are coming from underrepresented backgrounds and presenting a story, because suddenly then they have the weight of the entire Asian population to express all of their lived experience, which is physically impossible to do. What it's saying is that, that means that we need your story and your story and your story as well to be shared. And it's something that I'm really you know, encouraged to see happening more in the publishing industry as well. I mean, in Australia, we're starting to see so much more representation and, you know, prestigious awards being won by groups that have not been represented there. And I've also heard stories of, of authors. Um, I know I remember a South Asian author sharing on his podcast how he was in a, in a publishing meeting and, you know, they had said similar to Amy Tan, oh, we've already got a, you know, a South Asian doctor on our shelves. So that's sort of done and how how that sort of hits you in the moment and you kind of, in that very moment, you don't really know how to quite respond. So, so there's a lot there. And I think before, before we sort of round off, I wanted to talk about, so you address the representation. Now we have, you have hashtag dumb bookstagram. Tell us about the beige index. You have the beige index with a friend of yours, I think, and you're hitting, hitting representation in film from different angles. So share a bit about the ecosystem that you're creating in that mm. space. Yeah, so it kind of started off with the whitewash. I'd met my creative co-collaborator, if that's the term, Jonathan O'Brien, who's a brilliant mind at the Queensland Literary Awards for, I mean, when I'd won the Glendower Award for the whitewash. So it was very far from being published. I guess it took about a year or a bit more than a year. And during that time, I was really stressing about 
the hell I would say, like on a podcast or on a radio interview. I was kind of like, look, I don't want to talk about myself. I, I, and I was starting to feel like, okay, well, here's the thing that I can talk about. But, but it was sort of all of a process, right? Like there was this slow realization of, well, you can share as much as you want. If you want to be private, you can do that. And if you can sort of advocate for the thing, then you can do that too. Um, but it sort of started off with just the meeting of the minds and thinking about the whitewash and then where we could go from there. And so the Beige Index is, we, we describe it as the Bechdel test, but for race. And it's not exactly that, but it's a nice little soundbite. We looked at the top 250 films as voted on IMDb by users. So the top most popular films that have been rated. Obviously, because IMDb is the platform that it is, it's heavily populated with Western films, Hollywood films, but... You know, there's so much to unpack there. I think that could be, you know, it, it, its own hours-long discussion, talking about sort of the white gaze and why films, why like Asian films are appearing. Like, are these the films that white audiences like? Are these films representative of Asian audiences' tastes? And then also crucially, because of a real like sort of strong interest from South Asian audiences. There's a lot of Bollywood films on the top 250, which I loved. And so we made it our mission to, and I'm on, honestly, I'm still recovering from this, but we made it our mission to watch every single one of these films, uh, just to say that we had done it, but also as part of the research. So just to get very sort of boring and technical, we did have um, a clear and scientific methodology around how we would rank films in the Beige Index. So I, I should just quickly explain that there's almost like this, you know, when you have the bushfire scale, like how likely is it to be a bushfire? And you have it at the low end of the dial. And then, you know, when, when it's like in the middle of summer, it's really, really high. So we wanted to have that quick visual and like a nice little animation when you went onto the, the page of, say, I don't know, like, David Fincher 7, the dial would sort of move to where, how beige that film was. And the, the methodology behind the dial's operation was, uh, let's get metadata for each of the credited actors in terms of ethnicity. So again, probably going to go down this huge rabbit hole that we don't have the time to do, but we were very rigorous and scientific about it. And there were sort of different levels of tiers of like research validation. So it all began with watching the film, but then getting validation of this particular credited actor's ethnicity, either through interviews, biographical information. I mean, we looked all of that up and we tried to be as accurate as possible. And I guess it's almost the same thing as the whitewash is it's like, it's really serious but it's also a joke. It's also really like we're, we're taking the piss, but we're also doing it in a way that highlights something that's really important for us, which is, again, pretty similar to the overall goal of the whitewash is to help. Uh, I, I don't know, like I, I hesitate to use such prescriptive language, but I guess the idea being if someone could read this book or go to this website and go, well, things are pretty messed up. That's the that's a good first step.
And I think the end goal of the Beige Index is just really to have people think about why are our popular films so white? Why and and there are obvious financial, structural, economic reasons for that. And not all of them are sort of this huge conspiracy against ethnic diversity. But what what I've tended to notice, and this is not part of the data set, and by the way, we've got great sort of data visualizations, graphs, and, and sort of tables that people can play around with, but that the films, the popular films that tend from Hollywood, I should say, that tend to be more diverse, if you look at who produced them, producers, directors, they tend to be diverse too. And that's like the the real sort of light bulb moment for me is like that it's coming back to that patchwork thing is it's not just about who's on the screen. It's really important about who's behind the screen, who's making the decisions to put people on the screen, influencing story, influencing sort of location. And then, and then even in location, trying to be accurate. Who are the people that care about, you know, whether downtown Chicago is actually visually from an ethnic perspective looking like it should? Um, I think they are people who grew up like us. I had a play around on it myself, um, and I'll put the link to it on the on the podcast notes because I really encourage anyone listening to go and check this out, understanding how much has gone into it. It is a fantastic data point and a fantastic source of data and so actually having an index like this as that real stark reminder and that that to think when we're doing a new thing what is all this historical data telling us and how can we actually change how can we move that dial not say oh well this movie graced grossed x in the box office this was the makeup of it so this is what it has to be next so yeah you've it's a fantastic fantastic source and a fantastic reminder and produced again in a really visually appealing way with in a really funny way in a way a really engaging way so i think you've sparked you've sparked some things there for me and how we actually present data to telling really important stories about got us to today and therefore what needs to change to change the data points for, for tomorrow. Oh, that's so great. Thank you. That really means a lot. And I should mention one thing too, is that when users go onto the website, uh, obviously it's different for mobiles because of screen real estate. We think that the optimum sort of user experience is on desktop or iPad, but for sure we've made a, like put in a lot of effort to make sure that the mobile app works well. But the reason why I say that desktop or iPad is preferred is because when you go onto with a large enough screen, you'll be able to see the first film and the last film arrayed in sort of this shelf. It's almost like a DVD shelf. Uh, and this was John's brainchild. He had this idea that each film would be sort of a spine <clears throat> or like sort of almost be like a DVD cover on a shelf. And that if we could buy shade represent each film in aggregate we'd have the entire shelf which itself tells the story so you can deep dive into each of the the films themselves and there are snarky little write-ups and you can see who who's in the film and how much it grossed and etc but to me it's beautiful because it's not telling us anything that we don't already know 
but it's presenting the data in such a way that we can actually see. This is the thing that made me really excited was when we started to play around with the alpha was you can actually see that over time we become beige. Like that's an incredible thing. It's like, it's the ne- it's the first step. There's more steps to go after that, but it's, it's very inspiring. You know, it sort of shows us that there has been progress and that there is more to be made. Couldn't agree more. I know through the grapevine that there is, you have another book coming out soon. So I don't want to end this without giving the opportunity to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's coming out next year, 2024. It's called Ghost Cities. I think it'll be out May. And, you know, I'm not as good, I'm not as polished in, in sort of describing the book, but I'll give it a go. It, it, it sort of follows a character called Xiang, although spelled with an X and not with an S. A young man who's living in Sydney, uh, working for the Chinese consulate office as a translator. But he gets fired from that job because they've figured out that he's actually monolingual and has been using Google Translate to do all of his work. So that is just sort of a slice, sliver of the book. But I guess, as you can tell, there's aspects of comedy in it, but really sort of excited to to publish this book, which is in a very different style as well. So, you know, it, it shares some of the DNA of the whitewash um, naturally, but it's it's written in a much more traditional style. Fabulous. A wonderful teaser. I can't wait to read that and just continue to follow all your good work in the space and with your writing, Sean. Thank you for taking time out to chat to us today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbiased with me, Darshi Harindra. I derive so much energy and learn so much from speaking to such inspiring guests and amplifying diverse voices. If you feel the same way, please do subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you consume your content from and follow me and the podcast so you can get all the latest episodes as they drop. I'd also love to hear from you. What works for you? What do you like to hear more of? You can connect with me via my website, darshiharindra.com. Until next time, stay open. Thank you.